from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Hold it! I just have to tell you about the art you hung Big news from Brown's Chicken. While we've always cooked our well, chicken here. in Colombia. Kills germs. The germs that can give you bad breath, see? And it lasts, you understand? Actors, especially when they're just starting out, tend to think of doing TV commercials as something that pays the bills until they find more legit work. But for the actor who got this commercial, it was a whole different story. You may remember Mac Tonight, the character from McDonald's commercials in the late 80s. He was this piano player with a crescent moon for a head, and for the actor who played him, it turned out to be his big break. That kind of was the catalyst for what what was to come, yeah. Since playing that character in those commercials, Doug Jones has become pretty much the go-to guy in Hollywood for playing otherworldly creatures including both Fawn and the Pale Man in Guillermo del Toro's great film, Pan's Labyrinth. You can now see Jones in del Toro's latest Oscar-nominated movie, The Shape of Water. It is about a mute cleaning woman in a government facility, played by Sally Hawkins, who falls in love with a captured humanoid amphibian, also mute, played by Joan. So, presumably you hadn't started as an actor saying, this is what I want to do. Right. I didn't know. I, I did not come out to Hollywood from Indiana back in 1985 with the intention of being monsters. I actually was in seeking sitcoms. I, I'm tall, skinny, goofy. Yeah. I'm the one who would come in, do an armpit fart, and go, hey, hey, and, and leave, you know. <laughs> uh, that's what I was after. Yeah. So, this came this came out of, out of the left field for me. Uh, but having a mime background from college, huh. I also can put my legs behind my head. So, I had contortionist on my resume as well. So my first agent was was capitalizing on, he's a physical guy. So all, all of the auditions that I would, would be sent out for were a lot of physical tomfoolery, costume wearing, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. this is how this came about. And the articles about you, and there are more and more of them, describe you as a creature actor. Sounds like you're completely comfortable being called a creature actor. <laughs> well, <laughs> they're comfortable calling me a creature actor, <laughs> yes. Maybe I, not I, you. You'd rather <laughs> just be an actor, perhaps. I think I think just actor is fine, yeah, because that's what I do. Yeah. The misconception is that, that I flap my arms around really well. Um, well, okay, I do like to think that I can do that, but I also can't do that without finding the heart and soul of a character like uh-huh. any other actor would do. Right. Some actors wear a T-shirt and jeans. Some wear a, a tail and talons and horns on their head. Uh, that would be me. So, uh, but, but it all has to start at the same place. What are this character's wants, needs, fears, loves, desires, and, uh, and intentions in the story? So I have to go there. Even if I'm growling at somebody, I have to know what all that is. Right. So... Do you think what makes a a really good creature actor is simply what makes a good actor? I do, yes. The step farther you have to go when you are wearing a creature suit or makeup is you need to be in the best physical shape you can possibly be in. Right. If a creature role requires a certain type of movement, a lot of squatting, a lot of uh, upper thigh and and buttock strength is needed maybe for a particular role. Right. 
In um, Shape of Water, what did Guillermo del Toro and Sally Hawkins and you call your character? In the script, he was just called Amphibian Man, but I thought, oh, that's a, that's a lot to say. That's a lot of syllables just to say, hey, Amphibian Man, <laughs> get over here. Well, when I showed up for set my first day, my trailer door uh, said Charlie on it. And the call sheet had Charlie, Doug Jones, call time, such and such. So I was like, so I asked Guillermo del Toro, did I miss something in the script? Does he have a name now? Is it Charlie? Did I miss something? Did somebody refer to me? He goes, no, no, no. That's, uh, that's just for Charlie Tuna. That's uh, between us. Sorry, Charlie. Only the finest prime tuna is good enough for Starkist. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, it was a little inside production joke. And right. uh, so we all called me Charlie, but um, but it's never referred to in the film. Uh-huh. How did you prepare for the role? I mean, did you feel like, what's my motivation? This is what who this guy is, and this is what he th- sees in this woman? Sure. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I have to explore all of that, yes. Um, the twist on this one was he wanted me to be more of an animal from the wild. He wanted me to be believable that they, that they actually captured me in the river, you know, uh, with a net and brought me back on a boat. So that meant that I had to quiet all of my human instincts to nod a certain way or gesture with my hand a certain way. All nonverbal dialogue because my, my character didn't speak a word. So Guillermo, he just gives me some bullet points and I go home and work on those. One of those was heroic. Because the the locals in the Amazon, it's referred to in the dialogue of the movie, that the locals worshipped me as a god. So right. he wanted me to have, have a posture and a stance and a presence that would warrant that kind of worship. Right. And the last bullet point he gave me was, and Dougie, throw in a little bit of matador. <laughs> Some matador. So, But I, I knew exactly what he meant because if you've watched a toreador uh, when they're they're facing off with a bull – uh, it's very choreographed and very uh, right. uh, uh, sexy and confident. They lead with the pelvis. So th- those are those are my notes to lead huh. with the pelvis and be as sexy as possible while while looking like a creature from the wild. So th- there was rehearsal, a lot, quite a bit of rehearsal for this film, right? Yeah, um, especially for Sally Hawkins. She, by the way, she is just a magical actress. Yes. I have never worked with anybody with with the on screen presence that that woman has. She's amazing. Yes. So she. Uh, she had to go through, she had to learn American Sign Language because her character didn't speak verbal dialogue either. So she had to learn sign language um, proficiently. She also had to go through dance rehearsal because she had a little fantasy sequence where we danced together in, yeah. in her mind. That took the bulk of rehearsal for me, of course. Neither Sally nor I, being dancers coming in the door, uh, we, they had to turn us into Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers <laughs> with, within three weeks. Yeah. So what that time bought us was time together. And that really was crucial for our on-screen chemistry. We had time to laugh together, cry together, share secrets and stories and our insecurities. And because we both had a lot riding on this film, Sally and I, and we understood the importance and what a personal project this was for Guillermo himself. And we wanted to do right by him. And, and when you're also dance rehearsing, you also build a trust because you're doing dips and spins and lifts and touching each to other. trust your partner yeah. Yeah, yeah. and touching each other a lot. Yeah. So that was great prep time for us to take it onto the screen in a, in a love relationship that was building without one word spoken, but with lots of glances and looks and tilts of the heads and touches, yes. So as 
you're rehearsing for three weeks, however, you're not running lines because neither of you have any. <laughs> right. Um, right. Um, uh, I, I presume you're not in the suit or anything. It's just you, right? Well, there you go. That, that's, that was the other issue. While doing the dance rehearsals, I was in a T-shirt and shorts uh, and some tennis shoes. So it's like, oh, what's this going to be like when the fish bits get on? Oh, I don't yeah. know. I'm, I might die. I might die. I could die. So uh, <laughs> that was the big fear. On the day we filmed the dance scene, they did have a dance double ready to go just in case as a, as a backup plan. Both Sally and I had dance doubles, and they wanted, they wanted them to run through the routine a couple times to get lifts and dips with more precision than what we might have been able to do to cut away for a couple seconds here and there. He'd never worn a creature suit before. His head was encased in rubber. And if that's a new experience for you, you can't control when the claustrophobia is going to hit for or sure. not. You just, for you sure. Just, it's a psychological thing. Yeah. That it's a phenomenon. And the poor guy, uh, he was breathing heavily, and he ended up uh, getting upset and vomiting. So, uh, really? so I ended up stepping in for my dance double. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when the dance double vomits, uh, that's in his mask? Oh, uh, no. We, uh, oh, bless his heart. The face of the of the prosthetic makeup is glued down to our lips, so we have oh, access to oh, our so, mouth. So you so have that, a that, way that to think... vomit and get it out. Yes. Yes. Oh, phew. Yes, things yeah. can come in, things can come out. Yes, exactly. Okay, good. I'm, I'm, I'm relieved by knowing that. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, that would be awful. But uh, but he was a beautiful, beautiful dancer. And there are, uh, if you look at the dance number, it is all Sally and me except for two little split-second moments. Huh. One was a, a kick of her leg and one was a, a lift in the air. I mean, obviously the dance scene and the whole movie is about expressing love, which you have to do silently. Did you ever think like, wow, she's mute. I can't speak. This is the silent era again. You know, words can often pollute or words can deceive but when you're looking at someone in the eye, that's why, that's why if someone's lying to you, you say, look at me in the eye and say that again, right? And a touch is, you can feel someone's ill intentions in their touch or their love in their touch. So the, the, the nonverbal falling in love actually made sense. It totally right. made sense and worked. And a director often will say, okay, let's do it again and try to say the line this way or do this. What, what, <laughs> right. what, what, what kind of direction did he give in this case where neither of you are speaking? Right. Well, for instance, a good, great scene uh, in his example, Giles, played by Richard Jenkins, is, is babysitting me. He's sitting by the bathtub. Uh, right. This is after he helps your character escape from the government lab and, and you survive in a bathtub next door to his apartment. And he has this conversation with me where he's like, guy to guy, let's just talk. Do you ever feel lonely? And like, he's having this beautiful monologue with me. I look in the mirror and the only thing that I recognize are these eyes in this old man's face. So my character has to listen to him and react somehow. So I, of course, being Doug Jones, I was like, I was, I was empathetic. I was, I was nodding and going, oh, yeah, buddy, right? You know, thumbs up, I hear you. I was giving off human visuals. And uh, that's one of the many moments during the filming that Guillermo had to say, cut, doggy, how? So he would just growl at me to remind me, oh, oh right, 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 not human, not, right, not human, not human, got it. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, so our, our shorthand has, has become humorous over these 20 years we've known each other. Yeah. Um, is this the first time uh, as an actor, as a creature, you, you've played the love interest? Yeah, well, the closest uh, love interest I had was in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. It was a, a love that could just never be. So it was tragic. Right. So this time, it, what made this different was that Guillermo said, no, nope, you're going to get it on. Oh, right. dear sakes. So, so when he first pitched the movie to me, uh, he was a bit concerned. He said, no, I know you're a good Catholic boy, so I want to make sure this is going to be okay with this. So I was like, well, how, 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 how bad could it be? I, I knew nothing about the story yet. Huh. And he said, well, you, there's a bathtub involved. 
I, oh, dear. So I said, <laughs> how about you tell me the story from the beginning and get me to the tub and then we'll, we'll talk about uh, my, my Catholic sensibilities. <laughs> so, so by the time he did tell me this beautiful tale, uh, uh, the innocence of it uh, and the the purity of that love. And, and also, I told him, I said, well, even the good Catholic boy in me doesn't think there's a protocol in the Bible for animals in the wild marrying first. So I think we're fine. I think <laughs> right, we're good. Right. And there was no apparent right. birth control use, so you're good on that grounds, too. <laughs> exactly. If you're going to go by Catholic standards. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and what I love, too, is, is how Guillermo says it, because he kept stressing, Doggy, you're going to be the romantic leading man of this movie. So that was, oh, Okay. That brought a little bit of pressure, a little bit yeah. of stress. Like, yeah. okay, I got to carry more. I got to carry more story. I got to carry more. It's interesting. Even though I've had Guillermo here in the studio, when I was talking to him, he mm. didn't sound as much like Triumph the Insult comic dog as your version of him. Sounds. As I do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, we were doing, <laughs> sorry, we were doing a panel together once, a Q&A after one of our screenings. And during the Q&As, I'll often, you know, recount these stories and I, and I can't do quote him without using that voice. Yes, it's good. So it's funny. He's sitting right, but he's, he was sitting right next to me. Yeah. And so, so, I, and so I said like, hey, doggy, you're going to be the romantic lady. So he gets on his microphone and says, do I really talk like that? And the audience busted up laughing, right? Because <laughs> he did sound kind of similar. Yeah, that's very funny. Um, the other thing about the the amphibian man or the or whatever mm-hmm. whatever we call him in, in, <laughs> or in Charlie sh- yeah. in shape or Charlie in shape of water is in addition to having to be fit to carry all the stuff you, you got to look good right you're very fit looking in that suit right the sculpture of the suit is key in that. Um, two areas that I kept hearing about were the lips and the ass. So it's like, uh, uh, because again, it's got to be sexy, got to be relatable, got to be kissable, got to be grabbable, right? So um, For the lips and the ass, respectively, I guess, in that case. In that order, yes. (laughs) So uh, I'm very skinny. I'm only 140 pounds at six, three and a half. Yikes! But that's a great skinny palette to start painting on. Right, 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 right. They can can build on me and make me whatever dimensions they want. So they they did a beautifully proportioned swimmer's build body uh, as this fish man. But I I knew we'd hit the right notes with the butt when I'm on set and I get up and walk away and Octavia Spencer looks at me and goes, "Mm," every time I walked (laughs) away from her. So I thought, okay, the butt's working. The butt is working. Who plays, by the way, uh, Sally Hawkins' best friend and colleague. Right. I I read that your, your costume in this picture took about three hours to get into every day, uh, which is a lot less than some of your other get-ups in other movies. Presumably, suits like this are, are designed for, for easy escape when nature calls? Oh, you know what? Okay, can we talk, can we talk about this? Um, Let's do it. <laughs> my, okay. <laughs> my, oh, dear. Well, you know that beautiful ass we were talking about? That comes at a cost, Kurt. Uh-huh. There was no trap door in the back. So what that meant is that Dougie has to take take care of bowels um, in advance of pull, pulling that suit. Because when I'm in the suit, it'll be a, for a good 16, 17 hours a day. Oof, yeah. So you have to make sure that, that you're not going to have a little accident. And that is my biggest fear in this world is that, I'm, that they're going to pull a suit off me one day and be <laughs> disgusted by the, by the aroma. But – uh, I, I did have a front flap uh, that I could use for, for number one, but with my webbed finger hands on, I couldn't negotiate the snaps and the, the hoo-ha and the hooks and the thing. So I basically had to wait till lunchtime and they could take one of my hands off. It took some ungluing so I could have lunch and use the, the facilities. 
but I had to temper how much water I take in. And so I went through most days a little bit dehydrated and a little bit scared <laughs> of what might happen with nature. So, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a young man's game, and I'm 57 now. Not sure how many more full bodies I want to do like that. I don't know. Well, that's, I was going to ask you about that because you said, I mean, the, the physical fitness, and clearly you're still physically fit and you're insanely skinny and all those things, but, like, <laughs> at 75, I wonder if you're going to want to do that. Oh, I can tell you right now at 75. No. no hell no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, the transition – I've been doing a lot more acting with my own face in smaller projects that you're not nobody will be as, as aware of. But I, I did a Hallmark Channel movie a couple of years ago with I was Raquel Welsh's butler. I wore a three piece suit with a bow tie and a watch chain, and I got to say witty things and uh, take care of uh, problem solving. And I uh, was in the makeup trailer for about ten minutes a day with a little you know a light dusting of powder and a little spritz on the hair, and you're good to go. Yeah. My dream, Kurt, is that I want to. I want to do more Hallmark Channel things uh, uh, and, and maybe play – I'm in an age bracket now where I could play the adult father of an adult daughter who's going through some issues. Right. And I can – I'll give her some great advice while I'm wearing a Christmas sweater and swirling a hot cocoa. Right? I left yes. there. There's my dream job right there. There you go. That's a, that's a good transitional plan. <laughs> I think that's that's where creatures go after they <laughs> – Exactly. They, they become dads. Doug Jones, thank you so much. Thank you. The Shape of Water was nominated for 13 Academy Awards and is in theaters now. That's just an enormous platform. It might get people information that they never heard of before. It might introduce them to a proposition that they never heard of before. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. You know, storytelling is your job. It's what you just want an award for. Uh, share a moving anecdote or an inspiring journey. Do something different. You know, entertain us. It will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again. That, of course, was Oprah Winfrey and some other memorable bits from the Golden Globes Awards in January, which this year was an unusually political event. So what's in store now for the Oscars? Could this year's Academy Awards really be just another year of thanking God, the spouse and the team at CAA and then getting played off stage? One of the producers of the show told The New York Times she hoped the broadcast would be, quote, a giant commercial for the movie business. In other words, better if politics doesn't overshadow the Hollywood boosterism. But are the award winners all going to play along? Or when some of them accept their awards, will they point out what they do not accept about the rampant sexual harassment in their industry? Or maybe, for instance, about American gun culture? 
We've asked two people to help us reckon with just how political the Oscars might get and to look back at political moments that have gone well and badly in the past. First, Alyssa Rosenberg from The Washington Post, who writes about politics and pop culture, breaks down for us the kinds of political moments we've seen before at the Oscars. You've seen sort of this narrowing of the way that you know, actors and directors talk about politics at the Academy Awards. And you have a couple of categories of speeches. You have Halle Berry, you know, talking about breaking a barrier, which she undisputably did. For every nameless, faceless woman of color that now has a chance because this door tonight has been opened. You're almost never going to get booed at the Oscars or criticized for being a clueless actor if what you're saying is, yay, America's made progress on race. Everything is awesome, (laughs) which is less nuanced than what she actually said, of course. But, you know, if you look back at some of the historical speeches where actors have talked about politics or they've sent other people in their stead to talk about politics, the moments have been just a lot rawer in some instances. I mean, if you if you look at Sachin Littlefeather's speech you know, when she's accepting the Oscar on behalf of Marlon Brando in 1973. For The Godfather. Right. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me. That speech is so polite. And people boo her. I mean, it's really harsh. But I wonder if in that case it wasn't uh, partly just people were angry about Marla not showing up, right? I think that's absolutely the case, right? I mean, he's saying this woman... These causes are more important to me than being congratulated by you in person, right? I mean, it is this rejection of the Academy. He's saying, the thing that I care about is the thing that all of you do unthinkingly all of the time. Uh, So a a different version of of turning political was last year when Ezra Edelman won Best Documentary Feature for O.J. Made in America. But I want to acknowledge that I wouldn't be standing here tonight if not for two people who aren't here with us, Ron Goldman, Nicole Brown. This is for them and their families. It is also for others, the victims of police violence, police brutality, racially motivated violence, and criminal injustice. This is their story, as well as Ron and Nicole's. What I thought was really deft about that speech is his argument that What happened to Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman and the fact that their families did not get justice for them is not something you can separate from police brutality and police racism in America, right? You know, if you care about justice for Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, you have to care about justice for the LAPD's victims because the LAPD's history of victimizing black and brown people in Los Angeles is what made it possible for OJ's defense attorneys to win an acquittal. And, I, you know, it's not a flashy speech. It's pretty subdued in terms of his tone of voice. But I think he makes that pivot really carefully, you know, really succinctly. And that's not a kind of argument we see on an Oscar stage very often. 
Uh, I want to go back now to to a much more controversial moment. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave uh, uh, winning the Best Actress Oscar uh, in 1978. That in the last few weeks you've stood firm and you have refused to be intimidated by the threats of a small bunch of Zionist hoodlums whose behavior whose behavior is an insult to the stature of Jews all over the world and to their great and heroic record of struggle against fascism and oppression. Now, uh, you heard the, the boos a little bit, but man, the, the boos got louder and went on. And, and I, I don't think, I, I don't know of any other Oscar speech where the speaker lost a crowd like, like Vanessa Redgrave did that night. Well, and you have Padachevsky get up after she speaks and directly refute her. To Ms. Redgrave, that her winning an Academy Award is not a pivotal moment in history, does not require a proclamation, and a simple thank you would have sufficed. I mean, I think that's an interesting case because Redgrave doesn't lay it out in the speech at all, but she was talking about Jewish protests of a documentary she'd made called The Palestinian. Um, And so I think part of what was going on there was the sense that the speech was sort of self-interested, right? (laughs) You know, she is making her own movie and really herself into this political cause in a way that is kind of self-indulgent or inappropriate. And and that onstage moment with uh, the screenwriter Pat Achaevsky, who had won an Oscar the year before for his highly political film, Network, that was clearly unplanned. Uh, he was celebrated for, for what he did. You could hear the, the audience cheering. But how do those extemporaneous political moments usually fly? Yeah, I mean, I think that ad-libbing often makes people uncomfortable um, at the Academy Awards because they're supposed to be this sort of seamless spectacle. And the sort of um, the moments of sort of overflowing emotion or going off script are supposed to be moments of gratitude, right? There's supposed to be Halle Berry just completely losing it as she accepts the Academy Award for Best Actress. They're not supposed to be people saying, you know, I have this thing to say that is actually more important than the proceedings. Um, Because on the night of the Oscars, nothing is supposed to be more important than the proceedings. And anything that punctures that bubble, I think, makes people in the audience a little itchy. I would not be standing here if it weren't for two very important men in my life, so, two that I haven't spoken with in a while, but I had the pleasure of just the other evening, Mr. Raleigh Farnsworth, who was my high school drama teacher. That is Tom Hanks accepting the Best Actor Oscar for his performance in the movie Philadelphia 25 years ago. And it is a political Oscar speech that my next guest, Cody Keenan, thinks is maybe the best ever. I know that my work... And this case is magnified by the fact that the streets of heaven are too crowded with angels. We know their names. They number a thousand for each one of the red ribbons that we wear here tonight. Just, just in case there are any Oscar nominees listening, that is a perfect Oscar speech. It was short. It was to the point. He, he wasn't afraid to be emotional, and you shouldn't be afraid to be emotional. I mean, you've just achieved the pinnacle of your profession. It's totally okay to be emotional. And he told the story. Cody Keenan was part of Barack Obama's speechwriting team from the 2008 campaign on, starting off as an intern and then becoming the president's director of speechwriting. And he is still Obama's chief speechwriter. You know, we don't necessarily, we don't do it in character, but 
we do read speeches out loud before we give it to them just to see if, if the cadence works, if a sentence is too long and you have to take a breath. Um, sometimes you can even tell if there's a missing syllable or if you just need one more syllable. But, you know, speeches are meant for the ear, not the eye. So you, you definitely want to do it out loud to yourself. There have been and continue to be community centers where we organize for jobs and justice, places of scholarship and network. Now, Cody, you had to write a lot of eulogies uh, for President Obama to deliver. The one that that made me choke up, and, and I do not cry easily, was in 2015 after the white supremacist murdered nine black people at the Charleston church. And then Obama spoke at that church about the importance of church in, in the African-American community. Places where children are loved and fed and kept out of harm's way and told that they are beautiful and smart and taught that they matter. That's what happens in church. That's what the black church means. Our beating heart. The place where our dignity as a people is inviolate. It's, it's the one speech that he worked on more than any other. Uh, I remember taking him a draft the night before and he called me back to the residence about five hours later and he'd thrown out the last two pages and completely rewritten them the longhand. But for that passage in particular, I called up um, about two days before, I called up the president's personal pastor, a guy named Joshua Dubois, and just said, tell me about the black church. And a lot of those lines came verbatim from him. And I remember the president added the, the lines, our beating heart, the place where our dignity as a people is inviolable. And I just thought it was beautiful. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The families actually forgave the killer in court. Uh, and he was really struck by that. And he came up with the idea of, let's talk about the concept of grace. That morning on Marine One, you know, as he, he stood up, we just got to Andrews and he stood up to get off the helicopter and he looked down at us and said, uh, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And I just, I said, uh, you do you. So it is not likely, I don't think, that anybody at the Oscars will uh, achieve the pitch perfection of that. But nominees, if you are thinking about making some kind of political speech uh, from the Oscar stage this year, we asked Alyssa and Cody for their biggest pieces of advice for doing that successfully. I think find a reason why you're the right messenger for this. You don't have to have a mother or a sister or a daughter to be upset about Me Too. You know, I would find somebody or something that really motivates you. What was the first thing that ticked you off? You know, of course, m you know, make sure that your own record is clear on this before you go do it, because that would be awkward. You, you know, we can try our best to be empathetic, but I, you know, I'd say for whatever anybody wants to weigh in on, do it authentically. You know, make sure you mean it. Make sure the moment is right. 
I think when actors and directors and producers go up there and model really effective, thoughtful political communication, I think that's really useful. It's easy to say that people in the entertainment industry are detached or protected from the vicissitudes of real life, although obviously, as we've learned over the past four or five months, that's just not the case at all. Yeah, I'm rooting for them to do a good job because God knows Americans need lessons in how to talk to each other right now. That was Alyssa Rosenberg, who writes about pop culture and politics for The Washington Post, as well as Cody Keenan, who is still chief speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Thanks to both of them. Coming up... Within an ensemble, you have all of these pieces that really need to work together in order for the movie to really work. There is no I in scene. You have to have that back and forth, that banter, the looks, the energy in the room. The kind of energy you can't necessarily just get from one performer. Why Slate's Aisha Harris thinks there ought to be an award for ensemble acting at the Oscars. That's next on Studio 360. This week, we are talking about movies and specifically the Oscars. Here is a scene from Girls Trip, a movie that came out last year. Well, you could have said no. Dina, nobody asked you. Sasha, just listen to Ryan for a second. You know what? Stop it. Stop it. I should know better than expect y'all two to have my back anyway. See, I know how it works in this circle. We got the queen bee, and we got her two little worker bees. What bees? Who are you talking about a worker bee? I'm not all Queen Latifah, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Regina Hall, and Tiffany Haddish playing old friends who've reunited in New Orleans for a vacation. Audiences and a lot of critics loved the chemistry of the comedic ensemble. But no Academy Award nomination. So why are we talking about a non-Oscar-nominated movie on a show all about the Oscars? Because Slate critic Aisha Harris thinks there ought to be an Academy Award category for movies like Girls Trip. In 2017, some of the best movies were not driven by singular performances, over-the-top characters who eclipsed everyone else on screen. Instead, I think that they were really driven by really great groups of people working together, a director who knew how to direct them, and chemistry. When it comes to the Academy Awards, there is only so much room to award people. There are five slots available for five actors to fill. And that space can get very crowded, often crowded with the same names you see over and over again, whether it be Meryl Streep or Denzel Washington. Now, don't you go through life worrying about whether somebody like you or not. You best be making sure they're doing right by you. And there is a whole machine behind who usually gets all the shine. There's an entire campaign that is built around these actors and these characters. And a lot of times a studio is not going to put all of their might behind a um, unlikely choice. What the Academy Awards could stand to do is follow in the footsteps of the Screen Actors Guild Award and other awards like it and honor not only individual standout performances, but also honor ensemble performances. In addition to having awards for Best Actor, Best Actress, they also have Best Ensemble. When I'm talking about an ensemble performance, I'm referring to basically any film that includes at least three and maybe even up to five or six different actors who really are working together. And it's not just one standout performance in the film that captures you. It's really all of them working some patty together to put together this really great uh, and fascinating film. 
what makes it different from, say, Tom Hanks, Alone on an Island. Wilson! Wilson! Or even this year's The Disaster Artist, James Franco. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. His performance as Tommy Wiseau is like the one thing that everyone is talking about, is that within an ensemble, you have all of these pieces that like really need to work together in order for the movie to really work. You have to have that back and forth, that banter, the looks, the energy in the room, the kind of energy you can't necessarily just get from one performer. So, Chris, what's your sport? Football, baseball? Basketball, mostly. I think of a movie like Get Out. There's a lot of characters in this movie. You have Daniel Kaluuya, who is playing Chris, who is a young black man going to see his white girlfriend's family for the first time. And the premise is about tension, tension between black characters and white characters, tension between older characters, younger characters, women, men. And there's one scene in particular that really stood out to me, the early dinner table scene. You ever get in string fights as a kid? I did judo after school, first grade. <laughs> Aww. You should have seen me. Judo. Because with your frame and your genetic makeup, if you really pushed your body, and I mean really train, you know, no pussyfooting around, you'd be a fucking beast. It's just so quiet, except for Caleb Landry Jones, who plays the brother. Jeremy, he is just so intense. And and when you're watching that scene, you can see how Chris is like very uncomfortable, but trying to keep himself together. And that interspersed with not just the two of them having this back and forth, but then the father looking on in this sort of like, you know, don't do this again. You're always messing with the guests. Like, don't don't turn this into a moment. And I won't spoil it, but I think if you watch it upon second viewing, that moment of the father looking on and also the girlfriend looking and being like, oh, what are you doing? This is embarrassing. I think that takes on a deeper meaning, a different layer of meaning when you watch the movie a second time. And that's just something that an ensemble does. They work together to create this moment, even without dialogue, that really, really sells the scene. And I think a lot of times when we're even talking about these ensemble performances, we're talking about families and family scenes, and families are about relationships. Lady Bird is another really good example of this. Why can't I just make the eggs? Because you take too long, you make a big mess, and I have to clean the whole thing up. Eggs aren't good for the environment anyways. What? You heard her. Eat quickly, please. We have Lady Bird, who is the central protagonist. Uh, but you also have her family, her mother, her father, her brother, and her brother's living girlfriend. And you can see from their family meal scene that they have a banter, a very well-worn banter that is full of antagonism, biting remarks, and just familiarity. Look at all these pictures. Every newspaper looks like USA Today. Shelly and I are trying to be vegan. That's a soy milk. You wear leather jackets. But they're vintage, so they don't support the industry. They aren't done. There's white stuff. You know how much you have brambles? Pigs are smarter than him, even. I never thought brambles was a genius, okay? Mom, the eggs are not done. Fine, make your own fucking eggs. I wanted to. You won't let me. Sister doesn't like me. I'm hungry. She does. There's a chance. Go to bed. And of course, the father in that scene, played by Tracy Letts, he's just sort of over it (laughs) or has has been able to put up a wall and pretend that it's not there. And he's reading a newspaper and just commenting on the graphics while all this is happening around him. Now, there's no doubt that Shirsa Ronan, who plays the title character, is the central focus of the film. But 
It's all about her relationships. It's all about her relationships with her family, her school friends, and her romances with two boys uh, that she really, really likes. I'm sorry that you're jealous. <laughs> Jenna is a moron, you know. She's not. She's in AP calculus. She's a moron in a deeper sense. You don't even know her. And that, to me, is what makes an ensemble. They don't even all have to necessarily be in the same scene altogether. But the fact that her world that we see and, and the way in which we see the world through her eyes is through her relationships with all of these different people, they each bring out a different side to her. Each of those sets of characters helps form Lady Bird in a complete whole. And without those interactions and without those relationships, Lady Bird wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Now, with The Florida Project, you have several actors who are actually amateur actors. They're not professional actors that Sean Baker, the filmmaker, found. And then you also have them playing against Willem Dafoe. Okay, I warned you. One drip and you're out. Oh, come on! Out now. It's going to melt outside. It's melting inside, too. But Bobby... And in one scene, you kind of get a sense of the way in which Tom Baker was really able to pull out some really great performances. You have Mooney, who is this very precocious and adorable little girl who lives with her mother in this sort of motel. And she is very much a troublemaker. And in one scene, she has done something very bad. And the motel manager, played by Willem Dafoe, comes to confront uh, her mother, who is in their motel room, along with Mooney and two of her friends. Yeah. I got a videotape of the kids illegally entering the utility room. Don't have to be okay. Hey, Scotty. Do you hear what I just said? I got it. I'm going to talk to her. Happens again, you're out of here. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That wasn't my and, idea. And water balloons thrown at tourists? You can't fuck with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Moni. You've disgraced me. Holy yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. And I think what really makes this worthy of being considered a really excellent ensemble and would deserve to be recognized at the Oscars or any other sort of award ceremony is the fact that had these actors, aside from Willem Dafoe, not been amateur actors, had been professionals, I think we would probably be seeing a little bit more of uh, recognition for what they've done. They don't necessarily seem like the typical Oscar-worthy actors, so they don't get that uh, attention. And I think having an ensemble award for that would give them the shine collectively that they wouldn't get separately. Filmmaking is a very collaborative art in many different ways. And so I think that when we ignore the best ensemble, the the best working together and crafting of this art. We are ignoring one of the main reasons why films work so well and one of the best aspects of filmmaking. We can honor more people and recognize that, yes, 
acting in itself is a very narcissistic profession and it involves a lot of ego. But at the same time, with an ensemble, you have to give and you have to take. And there is a lot to be said for being able to work with other actors and being able to direct other actors. And putting all of that together, I think, is really one of the main reasons why there should be an award for Best Ensemble at the Oscars. Aisha Harris is a critic and culture writer for Slate who also hosts the podcast Represent. Zoe Saunders produced that story. Aisha makes a good case for adding a category to the Academy Awards. But before we end the show, I'd like to make a case for trimming an existing category, Best Picture. It's not that I'm a praise withholder by nature, my First job after college was working for a movie critic, and then I became an architecture critic. So I'm just aware of a certain occupational hazard of being a cultural gatekeeper. When your job is sifting through hundreds of movies or records or books or whatever every year, the majority of what you see or hear or read is going to suck. When the rare, pretty good new thing comes along, it's tempting to go overboard like a hobo on a ham sandwich, as they say. But I think the grade inflation around Hollywood from critics as well as the Academy has reached a new peak. A lot of B-plus and even B work is getting an A. How come? I think because serious-minded critics and people in the movie industry are overcompensating in reaction to a Hollywood now so dominated by big, loud, spectacular franchise fantasy. Of last year's 50 top box office movies, 90% were of the Justice League, Kong, Fate of the Furious, Power Rangers variety. And so, realistic but so-so movies get more acclaim from critics and awards voters than they deserve, especially if they're by filmmakers who've done good work previously. That's why the reviews of Noah Baumbach's not-great Meyerowitz stories last fall were 92% positive, according to Rotten Tomatoes. And why Aaron Sorkin's meh screenplay for Molly's Game is up for a Best Screenplay Academy Award. You disapprove of me. It's not personal. And why Christopher Nolan's epic but underwhelming Dunkirk has eight nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director. What has happened is a colossal military disaster. Or take Phantom Thread. Yes, Daniel Day-Lewis is always a pleasure to watch. Yes, writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson is always interesting. Yes, the movie looks gorgeous. But why such over-the-top praise and the Oscar nominations for Best Picture and Best Director? Because Phantom Thread is perverse and baffling, effete and, and neurasthenic, like its main character. In other words, it's arty, which in this era of cartoony cinematic spectacle passes easily for great art, a masterpiece. Maybe you have no taste. The other big factor this year that led to some imperfect movies being overpraised are our current politics. The main characters in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, are an angry and beleaguered white rural working class woman and an out-of-control white racist cop. And the story centers on a rape the police maybe haven't taken seriously enough. Seems to me the local police department is too busy eating Krispy Kremes to solve actual crime. 
Sure, terrific performances by Frances McDormand and Sam Rockwell. But because the movie embodies so many of today's big zeitgeist themes, I think it seemed better than it is, more important and thus won the British Oscar for Best Picture and is up for seven Oscars on Sunday, including Best Picture and Best Screenplay. Or Mudbound, a familiar by-the-book story of race relations in the 1940s South and a horrific white supremacist villain. I don't know what they let you do over there, but you in Mississippi now, you use the back door. I think if we didn't have a president who encourages horrific white supremacists, Mudbound might not have gotten 96% positive reviews and a Best Screenplay nomination. That same president called Meryl Streep, quote, one of the most overrated actresses in Hollywood. I disagree. But her current picture, The Post, directed by Steven Spielberg, definitely one of this year's most overrated movies. Thank you, Arthur, for your frankness. Because if we didn't have a president slagging and threatening the press, including the Washington Post specifically, I don't think the Post would have been rushed into production a year ago or now be a Best Picture nominee. What's more, especially right now, of course critics and journalists nostalgically swoon for a story where journalists are the perfectly heroic white knights. The Motion Picture Academy has actually encouraged the looser standards. Remember when there were only five Best Picture nominees? That's how they did it for 65 years until 2009, when the rules changed to allow as many as 10. So I got to thinking, what if they still limited it to five Best Picture finalists? Which four of this year's nine nominees shouldn't make that cut? If it were up to me, I'd eliminate The Post and Dunkirk and Darkest Hour and either Three Billboards or Phantom Thread. But what do you think? Which were this year's five best best picture pictures? Let us know. Hashtag only five best pictures. That's only number five best pictures. On social media, we're at Studio 360 Show. That's hashtag only five best pictures. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Zoe Mitchell. Our producers are Evan Chow, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. Okay, the butt's working. The butt is working. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, why Toni Morrison decided to become a novelist at age 39. I wanted to read a book about the most vulnerable person in society, female, child, black. And it wasn't around, so I started writing it. Late Bloomers, next time on Studio 360.